So the psalmist said, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, right? 
That's the choice part. Every day is the day the Lord has made. The question is whether or not you're going to be grumpy and complain or whether you're going to rejoice and be glad. That, that's the choice part. So this is the day that the Lord has made. That's a given. We can't take that away. We can't give credit to somebody else. This is the day that the Lord has made. The question now is whether or not we're going to rejoice and be glad or whether we're going to be grumpy and complain. Right? So we just get to pick. We just get to pick. So this morning, I, I want us to just to say, okay, God, it's the day you've made. You have a destiny. You have a plan. There's a design. There's a reason. You put this day together in a particular way. There are things you're expecting to have happen, and I get to be a part of that, and so I'm going to choose to rejoice and be glad. We're just going to make that choice this morning. Fair enough? If you'd like to have prayer this morning during the the worship time, there's going to be some people back here by the prayer signs, and uh, they're there to to pray with you, because I know some of you, to be able to rejoice and be glad in your day, you're going to need to turn all your cares over to the Lord right? Because that's part of it. Cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. So for some of you to get to the rejoice and be glad part, you're going to have to cast your cares on him. So I want to encourage you to do that. Those of you that are watching online, you can do that uh, even electronically. You can be able to post your prayer requests and uh, we'll be praying for those not only today, but also throughout the week. So uh, everybody this morning has got a chance, whether we're in the building or whether we're online, to be able to say, I'm going to cast my cares upon Jesus because he cares for me and I'm going to choose to rejoice and be glad. So Father, we thank you for this day that you've made. I thank you, God, that it didn't happen by accident. It happened on purpose that you have a plan for today. There are things that you want to accomplish. There's things you want to see happen. There are things that you have designed for this day, and those things are good. And thank you for including us. We don't have to just watch. We get to participate in the good that you are doing. So we choose to rejoice and be glad in this day that you have made. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Son and daughter. 
So we just sang that great are you, Lord. I love that phrase that says that the Lord is great in mercy and abounding in love. Great in mercy and abounding in love. One of the songs that we sang just a moment ago says that broken, I run to you because your arms are open wide. There's something to that effect. I just felt that it was important to stop this morning and to remind somebody of the fact that you don't have to get it all together before you run to Jesus. Sometimes I think in our, just our, our fear and, and our shame, and, and, and let's face it, an awful lot of people didn't put up with us when we were struggling, that we somehow think that Jesus is the same way as they were, that, that he would treat us the same way they have. And just for you to remember this morning that you can come running to him broken because his arms are open wide. He's, he's, not, he's not critical and judgmental. He'll tell you the truth, but he's not critical and judgmental. There's a difference. And that you can come to God in the midst of your brokenness. In the midst of your brokenness, you can come to God. So Jesus, we say thank you for the fact that your mercy is new every morning. We thank you for the fact that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So your grace is greater than our sins, that your loving kindness never fails, that you are great in mercy and abounding in love. We thank you for all of those things. And so God, some of us maybe a little hesitantly and certainly with a little bit of embarrassment come to you and say, here I am again, God, here I am again. I thank you that you just love us. You love us when we come. You don't necessarily love what we've done. And you certainly don't love what's happened to us. But you love us. And so I thank you that broken, we can come running to you because your arms are open wide. We pray for healing. We pray for forgiveness and mercy. We pray for the courage to start again. And I say, all right, here we go. One more time. Here we go. Thank you, God, that you give us the courage and the strength, the ability to go again, to start over with your grace and your mercy, your kindness and your forgiveness in the power of your love to go again. Thanks, God, for loving us, loving us that way your name we pray. Amen. 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 Bless you. Thank you for taking time to worship with us this morning. And uh, wave, to, wave to some of the people around you. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't think you can, I don't think you can spread a virus by waving. I think, I think that's still an okay thing to do. So uh, don't cough on anybody, but uh, feel free to wave at them. That'll, that'll all be a good thing. <laughs> that'll all be a good thing. Bethany, I see you back there. You coming to get some kids? Going to collect them? Sure, why not? <laughs> if you're in uh, first through fifth grade, you need to come on down and, and connect with Bethany here. You guys are headed off to, to kids' church. So, cool. Come on, come on. <laughs> off you go, off you go. <laughs> so... While these guys are coming, let me just uh, remind you that uh, middle school is uh, at their uh, 
middle school retreat. And so we want to pray for our middle school kids as well, that uh, that retreat time will have been uh, significant and special for them. So uh, we want to we pray for those kids as well as uh, all of the kids that are coming up front here. So uh, let's, just, uh, let's just pray together, okay? Father, thank you for the destiny of each and every one of these lives. Thank you, Father, for who you've designed them to be. I pray that they would find that the absolute best thing in their life is to be who you made them to be and to accomplish what you called them to accomplish. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for the lives of our middle school students and the things that are already happening and have been happening this weekend at their retreat. Thank you, God, for your blessing on them. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Bless you guys. You guys go have fun. Bethany, you got a couple more coming behind you. Don't lose them. Don't lose them. All right. So we've got some announcements, some things we want to keep you up to speed on. So uh, take a look at the screen. You're going to see two of the prettiest women you've ever seen this morning. Hey, Parkway family. It's so great to have you this morning. I'm excited. Are you? I have a couple of things that I'm going to tell you about. First, don't forget that we have our digital connect cards. You can use those if you're brand new. You can use those to update your address, and you can even use that to share a prayer request. We pray for you every week. Got tithes and offerings? Our ushers will be waiting for you at the back doors at the end of service. Also, you can give online. BGMC Sunday is coming up this month. It's going to look a little bit different this time. Instead of our kids running around the worship center collecting change, you can grab a buddy barrel in the lobby collect change the whole month, and bring it back for BGMC Sunday. Hi, my name is Jeanette, and this is my granddaughter Maggie, and we are here so excited to invite you to our next Live Loved and Connected event, which is here in this beautiful backyard of Georgia Whitlots. It's going to be August 21st, about 7 o'clock. Um, super cash, bring a lawn chair or two, and bring all the friends in the entire world that you have. Um, there might be some s'mores involved, I heard. Um, so it's super casual. We have a special guest coming from Eugene, Sorin Backer, who is just, she's all about just sharing the heart and love of God. And I think we need to really be reminded of that. I am anticipating God doing huge things besides the fact that we get to spend some time. So there's lots of space to, to, um, to spread out back here. And um, I, I'm so, so excited to be able to see your lovely face. So, see you then. See you then. <laughs> what did I tell you? Yes. Aren't they cute? Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to have Jack and Maggie with us for a couple of weeks. And... Uh, for some reason, their father thinks that they should live with him. And I'm thinking that living with us would be so much better. But uh, we, we, haven't, we haven't been able to settle that one yet. So uh, apparently they're only here for a couple weeks instead of for as long as they should be. Hey, I got one other announcement in, hidden away in this little envelope. One of our security guys outside found a little diamond stud. And there's only one. Uh, so I'm it, it might have fallen out of somebody's nose. That's why I'm going to keep it in this little envelope and not, not touch it because it, I'm sure it's virus-ridden. Just 
I'm sure just it would get all over you. But uh, anyway, it, it, it appears to be uh, the real thing, and uh, that would make it of some value. And uh, so you might not think that, you might not even know where you lost it, and if you did, you might not think to call the church lost and found to see if we found it. So I'm just going to let you know that it's here, safely tucked away to where I don't have to touch it in that little envelope right there. So there you go. If it's yours, you can, you can come and, and collect it. All you have to do is describe what it looks like. <laughs> it's a little and shiny. Oh, you're right. You know, it's, it's yours. You know, uh, <laughs> one one time I I was I was out with out with the kids and we were we were intertubing on this hill and I, I I found a fifty dollar bill while we were tubing on the hill, and so I just you know I just stuck it in my pocket and uh, this guy came up and said, Hey, did you find any money? You know, and I said, I said, yeah, yeah. What, what are you looking for? I had a $50, right? You don't see $50 bills very often. So I figured if the guy, you know, if he was, if he gave me the right figure, it had to be him, right? So he got his, he got his money back. Wet as it was, he got his money back, you know? Because if he just said, you know, it's a, well, it's a 10. Well, yeah, no. Too bad, 50's mine. <laughs> you know. So anyway, yeah, it, that's, that's yours. And I don't know how you describe it because it looks like all the rest of them. But anyway, if you think it's yours, let me know and we'll, we'll do something with it. Otherwise, we'll, we'll sell it for missions or something. I don't know what we'll do with this silly thing. So we are back into 2 Timothy. We, we get to the place, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I give you a minute to find it. Uh, you got, there's Bibles around uh, if, you, if you didn't bring one or if you got one on your phone. Uh, again, it's 2TI. That's the abbreviation for Timothy, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We, we get to the part in this letter that is probably the most well-known because it includes one of Paul's lists. And anytime Paul has a list, people tend to describe, not a list, a list. Anytime he has a list, they, those tend to get taught on because they kind of give you some words to work with. Uh, and so this is probably one of the most famous portions of this whole letter. The other part of it is that um, this is where we get that kind of church phrase, end times or last days. And what we've had up till this point is Paul talking to Timothy about, Timothy, you need to be grounded in your faith. There's some tough things that are coming, so you need to be well-grounded, well-rooted. You need to have a solid foundation, however you want to say that. He's saying you need to be ready because some tough things are coming, so you need to hang on to this. When we get to this section, Paul starts to talk about what the tough times actually are. This is what they're going to look like. This is what they're going to sound like. This is what they're going to feel like. And so he's, he's moving into that to that section of the letter. Paul is anticipating that these in the last days perilous or terrible times will come. When he, when he talks about last days, he's not thinking of something far off. He's thinking of something that is going to happen in Timothy's lifetime and the fact that it's already started to happen. So when there's a storm blowing in, it doesn't go from zero to 100 mile an hour winds, right? It starts to come in, the wind starts to pick up, the surf starts to build on those places on the coast as the hurricanes blow in, and eventually the storm hits, and it's, then you get 100-mile-an-hour winds. What Paul is telling to Timothy is, hey, there's 100-mile-an-hour winds coming, but it's already blowing, buddy. You can feel it. You, you need to get ready. It's coming. And so that's the kind of the appreciation that, that Paul has and what he's trying to get Timothy to see. What we need to see from our perspective is that what Paul described back then is something that is also happening in our time because we realize, okay, it happened for, for Timothy 
Timothy got through that, and it's coming down to us. It's going to happen for us, and we need to get through that. Remember, we talked about that whole prophetic kind of, of, of calendar of events, how to, how to read prophecy or what we call apocalyptic literature, and we talked about the fact that history kind of ebbs and flows. It moves forward, then it steps back, and this happens, and then people kind of recover from that, that there's this kind of back and forth that happens in human culture. And we see it on both sides. Well, sometimes we'll see things where things move into something that's really good. And there are these huge revivals. And there's this awareness of right and wrong. And, and people kind of change their lifestyle. But what we see is that over time, some of them begin to kind of fall back. And they fall back into some of those things. We'll see sometimes when it appears that evil is winning. And it's like, oh my goodness, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's like, it's spinning out of control. And then it kind of seems to back up a little bit and things kind of settle down again. But they're, 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 they're not as good as they were because we, we kind of took a jump forward. We talked about that description. And that's a bit of what we're going to see here. That in, in, in Timothy's day, Paul is saying, hey, there's some stuff that's going to move you forward. You need to be ready for it. You need to resist that because they, these are going to be terrible influences. And then it kind of settled back. And, and so that's why we're reading this letter is because it gives us advice. Those of us that are living in difficult times, it tells us how to respond and, and, and what, we should, what we should deal with. The passage begins with this long list of kind of unflattering behaviors and unflattering characteristics of people that Paul says are just descriptive of the decline of human beings. That left on their own, separate from God, human beings tend to deteriorate individually and collectively in these ways. And so he gives this kind of long, unflattering list. And it ends with this warning that says, you need to turn away from those influences. You need to turn away from those kinds of people. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, similar to the concept of what it means to repent. When we talk about repenting of your sin, it doesn't mean, oh, I sinned and I feel really ashamed. No, that's shame. That's not repentance. I sinned and I feel really sorry for the consequences. That's sorrow. That's not repentance. Repentance is, this is bad behavior. I turn away from it and I move away from it. And that's what Paul is describing in the, at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 2, he describes some influences. He says, Timothy, you need to call these people to repentance. Now he's saying those who refuse repentance, you need to kind of distance yourself from their influence. So it's just a progression of thought here that we need to understand. When it talks about last days, let me, let me just give you this perspective because we're hearing a lot more about that right now. People are going, boy, is, is this the last days? You know, is this the end of times? And people are, are real concerned about those concepts. I need you to understand that when Scripture uses the idea of last days or in these end times, when it uses those kinds of phrases, it's not talking about a particular week on the calendar. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this period of time that starts with Jesus coming Jesus comes, dies on the cross, is resurrected. The Holy Spirit comes when he leaves and empowers individuals and empowers the church collectively to live a righteous life until the return of Christ. And while we live that righteous life, we are part of his ministry of reconciliation where he's trying to save all of humanity. The period of time between when Jesus came and when Jesus returns is called the last days. And we're living in the middle of that. So it's not so much a calendar as it is a concept of time. And so Paul would have understood himself to be living in the last days. 
He would have looked at Timothy and said, Timothy, you need to get ready because in the last days, terrible times are going to come. He would certainly look at our situation and say, man, you are in the last days and terrible times are going to come. You need to be ready, grounded in your faith, knowing what kinds of things you need to avoid. So that's the concept of how Scripture is going to use this idea of the last days. Timothy's going to be warned and encouraged as a leader. Timothy, you need to protect yourself. You need to look first at yourself and make sure you're doing okay. As a leader, you need to look out to the congregation you're responsible for, and you need to make sure that they're doing okay. And again, you need to be resisting evil, because while God is doing all of these things, Jesus comes, dies, resurrected, the Holy Spirit comes and powers the church. We are His ambassadors. He's making His appeal to the world through us. He's going to return again, that during this period of time, while all of that good is happening, there is evil resisting that good saying, no, we don't want people to be saved from their sins. We don't want people to be set free. We don't want people to stop suffering. We don't want pain to leave the earth. There is going to be evil that resists that. And so we are, we are called to acknowledge that, take care of our own business, live holy and righteous lives, help each other, encourage each other to do that, as Timothy's being encouraged to do for the church, and to acknowledge the fact that there's going to be resistance. You need to know how to deal with it. You need to know how to respond to the evil that's going to push back. That's what he's talking about. And so he, he ends chapter 2 by talking about, Timothy, you need to encourage these people. You need to help them because some of them have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And sometimes we read that and we go, oh my goodness, it must be horrible to be demon-possessed. Somebody taken captive to do his will. But I need you to understand that at any given moment, some of us can slip back into our selfishness, can slip back into ourself, and what comes out of us is not very good. So you remember when Jesus took his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's in the north part of Israel. You can go to where the ruins are for that. It's a lot of water there and there's some caves. It's kind of an interesting place. And it says that when Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, they gathered together and he asked them, who do people say that I am? And you remember that they started giving, well, we've taken a poll, you know, been asking around. Here's what people say. Some people think you're Elijah the prophet. Come back. Some of, you say you're, some of them say you're just the prophet, kind of the unnamed guy that's supposed to come before God makes all things right. Some people are saying that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead because John the Baptist had been killed about a year and a half earlier. And so they're going, oh, you, you're, you're like John the Baptist all over again. And Jesus said, okay, well, that's what everybody else thinks. What do you guys think? And Peter gives this incredible answer. He says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, good answer. 100% gold star, pass the class. That's the right answer. And it's upon that reality, we're going to build the whole kingdom of God. Great stuff. It says then that Jesus took his disciples from there. They gathered together privately and, and, and in just in a circle. And Jesus began to say, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I want you to remember Isaiah chapter 53. The prophets have foretold that the Messiah will suffer for the sake of his people. And he talks to them about crucifixion. He talks to them about resurrection. And what does Peter do? This is the same guy that just passed the class. Same guy got the gold star. He comes up to Jesus and goes, there won't be any suffering here, Jesus. Not going to be any death here, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're going to get this country organized. We're going to get our 
our stuff together. We're going to get our troops together. We're going to run the Romans out of town. We're going to get control of this country, and we're going to live the life we've always wanted to live. None of this crucifixion dying stuff. And what does Jesus say when he responds to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. He doesn't rebuke Peter. He rebukes the source of Peter's comments. At that moment, Peter lost his mind. (laughs) The devil suggested something to him that was very well intended. He doesn't want to see his friends suffer. He doesn't want to see Jesus go through all of that. And he doesn't want that kind of kingdom. He wants a victorious kingdom. He wants the Romans out of town. Get the Roman soldiers out of the temple courtyard. Let's clean this thing up. Let's get our country back. It's all well motivated. It's just incorrect. So I I need you to see as we read through all of this that we're not talking about demon possession, but we are talking about the fact that even as a Christian, every once in a while you can lose your head. Every once in a while you can get crazy in the head and start saying stuff that isn't right. (laughs) And we need to make sure that we're standing against those influences so that we can say and do the right things. So that's kind of the context that this whole thing is put into. So we're at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Some of you thought we were never going to get there, did you? Okay, we're here. Paul says, understand this, that in the last days, or in the end times, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, they will be lovers of money, they will be proud, they will be arrogant, they will be abusive, they will be disobedient to their parents. Isn't that interesting that he threw that in there? I mean, all this other stuff sounds really bad, and all of that sounds like, well, that's what every kid does. (laughs) It's interesting to me that that's on the list with all these other nasty words. They will be ungrateful. They will be unholy. They will be heartless. They will be unappeasable. That's an interesting one. We'll look at these in in a minute. They will be slanderous. They will be without self-control. They will be brutal. They will not love good. They will be treacherous and reckless. They will be swollen with conceit. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will have an appearance of godliness, but they will deny its power. Timothy, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so most of you, unless you've read this portion, never saw that name before, In Jewish literature, not scripture, but in Jewish literature, folklore, the the folk tales of, of Judaism, these are the names that are given to the two magicians of Pharaoh that resisted Moses and Aaron. Remember that story? Let my people go, you know. Pharaoh's going, who's God? I'm not going to do that. And the magicians and Moses and Pharaoh squared off. That whole, nobody remember. It's the book of Exodus. Read it sometime. Okay. Those two guys, that's who they are. Just as, as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. They are men corrupted in their mind, and they are disqualified regarding the truth. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was for those two men. 
Basically, Paul is telling us that bad behavior and the justifications for doing it never exist without support. So Paul discusses both the bad behavior and the types of people who are going to declare that bad behavior, that are going to defend that bad behavior, that are going to promote it, along with describing those most likely to be influenced by it. And what we want to do is work up from the end of this passage back up toward the list at the top so that we can begin to see what what he's talking about. So for some of you, when we started to read through this passage, there was this, this, this kind of, you know, lemon juice vinegar moment where you went, ooh. And you went, well, that's a gender bias right there. You read that comment that Paul made and you went, well, Paul's just dishing on women. He must be prejudiced. I don't, I don't know about that guy, Paul. I think he's got a problem with, with girls. I want you to put what he says there in context with everything else that happens in this letter. Paul is saying, Timothy, here's some kinds of things that are going to take place. Here's some examples of how they're already happening. And as he uses those examples, he's calling them out by name and saying, this is specifically what's happening in Ephesus. It may not be happening everywhere else, but I need you to know it's happening in your town, Timothy, and you need to deal with it. And in that sense, every time that Paul calls something out and names names, he mentions men, and every time but one, he mentions them in a negative light. He's saying, this guy messed up this way, this guy messed up this way, this guy resisted the gospel, this guy caused a lot of harm. I need you to see that this is not something where Paul's going, well, the problem in the church is all the girls. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Timothy, you need to understand that in Ephesus, there are some women who have been led astray by some teachers, and you need to deal with that situation. He's calling out the specific events that are happening, but he's not doing it on some gender bias, because every time he calls out the names of the guys, except for Onesephorus, who was the one guy who came and helped him, every other male reference, other than the greetings, but every other male reference all the way through here is a negative example. Paul's simply saying, Timothy, this is what's going on in front of you, and these are the people that are already doing it. You need to get ready because it's going to get worse, and you need to resist their influence. So I need you to understand this is not a gender bias issue. Even though when you read that, sometimes you go, ooh. And part of that's coming out of our culture, not coming out of Paul's. Paul doesn't see it that way, and we have to make sure that we don't kind of lay that down on top of what Paul's trying to say here. Paul's warning is that there are going to be those who will resist the truth because they prefer a self-indulgent lifestyle with some sort of pseudo or fake spirituality rather than true spirituality. Because true spirituality will confront our selfishness and it will confront this kind of addictive need for pleasure and the money to purchase it. As one writer said, true spirituality confronts our immaturity and it confronts our imperfections. And it's really easy for us to try to change the gospel so that it accommodates our immaturity and our imperfections. And so we'll read all the Bible verses that we agree with and go, that's a wonderful verse. People should live like that. Ooh, that's a great promise. People should believe in that. Ooh, this verse, well... I know the Bible says it's not a good thing to do, but yeah, it's, that's not a big deal. That, that, that's, we, we, can, we can go along with that. 
And we tend to change the gospel and say, wait a minute, this is my immaturity. This is my imperfection. I don't want to be confronted in my immaturity and in my imperfections. I want the gospel to accommodate me instead of change me. I'll just tell you, a gospel that doesn't offend you at some point isn't the real gospel. And I'm not saying that because the gospel is designed to be offensive. I'm telling you that because the gospel is designed to help you. And at some point, the help that you need is to somebody to look you in the eye and say, stop it. Don't do that anymore. That is hurtful to you and that is hurtful to other people. Quit. Because the gospel is trying to help you. So if all the gospel ever did was talk about the good things that you did, but it never confronted any of the bad things that you did, it would be a gospel that's not helping you. It would be a gospel that's just leaving you in your mess, and you don't get any better. The, the, the most important Bible verses are the ones you like the least. Those are the most important Bible verses for you. Because if you already agreed with God, you didn't really need that verse anyway. It's the verse that didn't agree with you. That's the verse you need to read. That's what you need to hear. And so Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, the gospel is going to come with an offense. Not because God is being rude, not because God is mean and angry, simply because God loves you too much to let you keep screwing up. He wants to help you grow up. We need a gospel that confronts our immaturity. We need a gospel that confronts our imperfections. And we need a gospel that challenges our preferred sin. Because all of us have preferred sins. There's some sins that we go, that's really bad. Oh, people shouldn't do that. And then there's other sins that people are going, that's really bad. Nobody should do that. And we're going, well, for me, it's okay. I mean, you know, in my situation, I mean, you know, what, what else could I do? The gospel has that offensive piece to it. And Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, you got people in Ephesus that are trying to rewrite the gospel. They're trying to take away the offensive parts. They're trying to take away the challenging parts. They're trying to take away the verses that get in their face and say, knock it off. And Timothy, you can't let that happen. You can't let that happen. And he says, it's happening especially with people who have already accepted this idea that I should be able to live this self-indulgent lifestyle that's based on what I feel. And he says, people who have believe that they have a self-indulgent lifestyle and they should be able to live the way they feel are people who are going to be susceptible to a rewritten gospel. Because these are the people that are going to go, well, God wants me to be happy. Right? Have you ever heard that? I mean, I know that none of you have ever said that because you're so much more mature in the faith than that. You are all incredibly wonderful, mature Christians, and you've never, ever said that once. But you probably know some people that are really struggling, and you've heard them say it, right? God just wants me to be happy. Yes, He does. That's why He's telling you to stop sinning, because He wants you to be happy. And He knows that if you keep sinning, you will not be happy. You will ruin your life, and you will ruin the lives of the people around you. That's why God's saying, stop it. Because he does want you to be happy. Him wanting you to be happy is not your excuse to sin. It's his permission to tell you to stop it. Does that make sense? 
Okay, three people. I'm good with that. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> so, Paul is challenging what is happening in the church in Ephesus, telling Timothy, I need you to help these people so that they get it right. And he's talking about, again, this tendency to rewrite the gospel to accommodate ourselves. And I want you to see how that is something that we need to be aware of given the culture that we are in. We describe the economy of America as a consumer economy. The economy in our country is driven by you and me buying stuff. That's what keeps this whole thing going. And when you and me stop buying stuff, all the numbers start going down. And the stock market starts going down. And the dividends to stockholders start going down. And everything starts to slide when you and I quit buying stuff. And there's always something to buy, right? I mean, I, I bought a big TV. I mean, I thought it was big. At the time, it was enormous. I bought a big TV. And I've got a spot on my wall that it just fits in. And I had to take a little bit of money out of both pockets to get it, right? I mean, I, I stretched a little bit, you know? It's like, okay, you know, I want to... Uh, yeah. Two weeks later, I'm at Costco. They have a TV that is 20 inches bigger than the one I bought. I'm going, you have got to be kidding me. I just got this thing. And now there's one that's 20, in 20 inches. I remember when my whole TV wasn't 20 inches wide. I mean, I'm a dinosaur. I can remember black and white TV. And I remember my dad finally stepping up and buying a color TV. And you know why? Because we were watching football and you couldn't tell the difference between the teams when you watched it in black and white because they all just looked gray. And you couldn't find the football because it was gray. So, so that's why we got a color TV so we could watch football. And the whole thing was like 20 inches. Now I've got this huge TV. They've got one that's 20 inches bigger that I need to buy. I didn't buy it. I thought about it. I'd have to remodel my whole house just to get it in. There's always something else to get. And when we connect consumerism with happiness, the more stuff I get, if I've got the biggest, the best, the newest, the fastest, the loudest, the whatever, then I'll be happy. We are incredibly susceptible as a culture to someone rewriting the gospel that says the gospel is about endorsing your pleasure rather than confronting your immaturity. We just need to be aware of that. I'm not saying that anybody here is guilty of it. But in another church, not too far from here, there are some people that I'm sure have that struggle. Not here. You guys are all doing great. But we need to be aware of that. That in our culture and in our society, we are very susceptible to a rewriting of the gospel that says, Jesus came to make you happy. Well, Jesus came to make you perfect. Came to make you righteous. Came that you might be conformed to the image of him. Not that you could have a 20-inch bigger TV. <laughs>
Because he's reminding them that, Timothy, the threat to the church is never from the outside. The threat from the church is always from the inside. When it comes to the threat on the outside and the sin on the outside, Jesus said, I will build my church and what? Somebody started to say it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That tells me that anything on the outside of the church that Jesus is building cannot prevail against, cannot overpower what it is that God's trying to create. What messes us up is when we get messed up on the inside. And specifically, he's talking about when we get messed up in ways that bring division and quarrels and struggles and arguing about words, because the greatest expression of Christianity, the greatest expression of spiritual maturity is to love one another as I have loved you. And Paul reminds the Corinthians, you can go and volunteer to be a martyr. You can run outside here and start pointing at the mountains and by faith, moving them around and changing what the geography looks like. You can sacrifice yourself to death through, through martyrdom. You can even speak and sing and sound like an angel. At the end of the day, if you don't have love, you are an annoying noise. That's all you are. You're just driving everybody around you nuts, and they just want you to be quiet. He's reminding us of that, and he's challenging us with the behaviors that would cause us to be that annoying noise. And he's saying, you need to pull back from that. It's the struggles on the inside that are the problem. It's not the struggles on the outside. I, I read an article this week. I don't know. Not very many people take the courier anymore. And, and that may not be such a bad thing all the way around sometimes. But, you know, I, 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 I still get it because I, I want to see if your name's in there. I was going to give Manny credit for he was in there because he was in the golf tournament. I wasn't going to give him too much credit because he lost, but I was going to give him credit. Anyway, you know, I mean, so I'm, I, I, I like reading the paper, see if you're in there. You know, every once in a while I see your name, I see your picture. It's kind of fun, you know, all the rest of it. Did you read the article about the topless bar and drain? Did you read, did you read that? So, so first of all, to put it in context, you have to understand, do you even know where drain is? What a name for a town, drain. You know, when you pull the plug, I mean, who came up with that name? And the only reason there's a town there is because if you're coming from the valley over the mountains and headed to the coast, you come to this place where you come down this hill and you make this hard left-hand turn. And they decided, well, everybody had to slow down anyway. Let's put a store here. Maybe they'll buy something. That's the only reason that town's there. I swear, if you cough and sneeze, you'll be through it and not even know you were there. That's the only thing there is in this town. Well, somebody somewhere along the line built a bowling alley, so they got a bowling alley there. And the guy decided, I'm not making enough with the bowling alley, so I'm going to put some girls with not, you know, don't have enough clothes on upstairs, and we'll see if we can make some more money. So they're talking about this whole thing and this whole article and all the rest of it. And one of the people that were complaining was a church because there was a church right next door. And they were going, I don't want this topless bar right next door to my church. And I'm thinking, what better place to have a church? You're right next door to all the people that need Jesus. I mean, this is perfect. I mean, if they were, if they were 10 miles away, you'd have to go find them. They're right next door. This, this makes ministry easy. You've got some women who do not understand what it means to be created in the image of God who do not understand what it means to be a daughter of the king and a princess in his kingdom. They don't understand that. You need to go tell them the truth about who they are. 
And you've got an owner who thinks that money is the only thing that matters and however he has to exploit people to make money is okay behavior. He needs to be confronted with the gospel. And you've got some weird drunk guys that are sitting around up there staring at women who are willing to be abused by this guy and they need to be challenged that that's not appropriate behavior for a son of God. You've got ministry and it's right next door. How lucky could you be? It's easy for us to get so worried about the sin on the outside that we forget that the priority is to take care of the sin on the inside and go do ministry out there. And the closer it is, the less time it takes to get to the ministry field. (laughs) It's right there available to you. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But there's going to be some people that get on the inside of this thing that are going to start tearing it apart from the inside because of who they are and how they live. So let's look at how Paul describes the evil of the last days. He says, terrible times are going to come, Timothy, and some people are going to behave in these ways. The first thing is that he says that they are lovers of themselves. They are selfish. This is not self-esteem. So there's a difference between self-esteem and selfishness. Self-esteem is when you begin to understand that you are a son of God, a daughter of God. You are a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. You have value. You have worth. You do not have to compromise yourself. You do not have to allow yourself to be abused or exploited. You can stand up for the truth and you can stand up for what's right. You are a person of incredible value. You need to have an incredible self-esteem that comes from knowing that you are created in the image of the all-powerful and almighty God which is very different from, I'm amazing and I'm wonderful and I should worship myself. Those are, those are not the same thing. And we somehow have kind of wrapped selfishness and self-esteem together and let people be selfish and we're saying, well, they, we, we don't want to curb their self-esteem. We, we don't want them to think less of themselves. Yeah, but you better correct their bad behavior or they're going to grow up to be somebody that nobody can stand. So yes, affirm their self-esteem, but use that self-esteem to call them to better behavior. Don't let them use their self-esteem as an excuse and a cover for selfishness. So Paul says, in the last days, terrible times are going to come. People are going to become selfish. Then they're going to become lovers of money. There aren't that many people that just love money for money's sake. I mean, right? Remember the movie The Hobbit? Remember the dragon? He's sitting there on all the gold stuff. He's got all, I mean, that's, he, just loves the, he just loves to have it because he can have it. There aren't very many people that love money for that. What they love money for is that it gives them choices and influence. That's what they love. They have choices and they have influences. Which means when you just bought the TV that you could barely afford and might have been more than you should have paid, when you walk in and find out two weeks later that there's one 20 inches bigger, if you got enough money, you can say, well, I'll just give that other one away and I'll get the new one. <laughs> when you don't have that kind of money, you start making choices and you go, you know what? <laughs> Waste of money can't go there. Money gives you choices, but it also gives you influence. You can buy your way out of situations, and you can use it to get people to do what you want them to do. Greed is not so much connected to, ooh, I have a big pile of money and I sleep on it every night. Greed is, I have power and influence, and I have lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. We apparently have lots of stuff in Grants Pass. COVID-19 can't slow down the garage sales. You know, they're happening like crazy, you know. Talk about people that lose their minds. 
They're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, they see a garage sale sign, and they're, they're weaving around on the road, driving to the wrong side, you know? It's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's when you want a Hummer. You just, boom, keep moving, turkey, keep moving, you know? And please, if you're going to park, at least pull all the way over to the curb. I swear, some of these people park half in the lane, the car's still moving, and they're coming out the door, you know? What do you, to save 43 cents, I don't know what the deal is, but greed. They are boasters. <laughs> the word literally means to be an imposter. It means to be a braggart. That's not a word we use much anymore. Braggart. Sounds like something from a pirate movie. A braggart. We don't use that word much. <laughs> I, I will just tell you that, that we have a wonderful example that happens on TV on a regular basis with some of our political leaders, one in particular, who is constantly describing whatever they do as the best ever. We just passed this bill. It's the best ever. We just went in and helped this situation. We did it better than anybody's ever done it before. We fixed this situation. Our administration's the best ever. <laughs> That's a perfect description of this word. <laughs> perfect description of this word, of what it means to be a boaster, an imposter, a braggart. Whatever I'm doing is the best that's ever been done, and however I do it, it's the best way it's ever been done. And <laughs> In the last days, terrible times will come, and people will be proud, showing yourself to be above others. This, this word actually originally was meant to be used in a good way. So if you go to the Olympics, you're running the 200 meters, the gun goes off, you run the race, you finish first, not only do you finish first, you finish faster than anybody who's ever finished that race before. You're the world record holder. We would use the phrase that said that this guy or this gal proved themselves to be better than the competition. That phrase, proved themselves to be better, is actually what this word means. What they discovered was that people who weren't winning the race were going around pretending that they were better than the other people. And so it began to have a negative context, not of the person who had actually proved themselves to be better, but the people who were pretending they were better when they really weren't. That's how, this, that's how it took on a negative connotation. Let me, let me just offer this. It is not humility to acknowledge that someone else is better than you when in fact they are. So if the other guy's stronger and I go, well, that guy's stronger than me, that's not humility. If the other guy's faster than me and I go, well, that guy's faster than me, that's not humility. I'm just acknowledging the facts. This guy's smarter, he's better looking, he plays the clarinet better, whatever it is. If he's better than me, and I acknowledge that he's better than me, that's not humility. Humility is when you know you're better than the other guy, and you have no reason to bring it up. So somebody says, wow, that guy's really fast. Yeah, he is. Period. Not, yeah, he is, comma, but I'm faster. <laughs> that guy's really strong. Yeah, he is. Period. Not, yeah, he is, comma, but I'm stronger. 
That guy's handsome. Yeah, he is. Period. Not yeah, he is, comma, but I'm more handsome. Humility is when you know you're better and have no need or reason to prove it. That's humility. That's humility. Then they are abusive. Uh, this, is actually, this is actually a word that we would use for verbal assault. <laughs> uh, the, the, the first word, that, that pride was this, this, where a person elevates themselves uh, above who they really are. This now shifts to how we treat other people. And because we think we're superior to them, it's okay for us to be abusive to them and about them in the words that we describe they are disobedient to parents. Somebody said charity begins in the home. Apparently, rebellion does as well. Because that's really the issue here. This is a person who has problems with authority. And the first place you're going to express your problem with authority is at home. Because that's the first authority you confront. Before you ever get to a teacher, before you ever get arrested, and before you ever have a drill sergeant in the Marine Corps, whatever it is, before you confront any of those other authorities, you're going to confront the authority that's in your home. And this is a person who has problems with authority. And it starts with the fact that they can't figure out how to get along with a parent who is an authority in the home. They are ungrateful. It's the opposite of being thankful. This is a person who believes everything they get is everything they deserve. Well, of course I got that. I'm wonderful. <laughs> of course I got I, I worked really hard for that. I deserve that. <laughs> what about the God that gave you the strength to work in the first place? <laughs> what about thank you, God, that you gave me the ability to pull this off? I'm really enjoying the reward of this. Thank you, God, for helping me. Instead of, well... I deserve that. He said they are ungrateful. They are unholy. Do you remember what the word holy means? What does the word holy mean? Set apart. Is that what you said behind your mask and I couldn't hear it? Did you say that behind your mask? Okay, you get credit first then. <laughs> it means to be set apart. It means to be set apart. You can take one person and another person. Neither one of them are better than the other. This person chooses to indulge themselves selfishly. This person chooses to be set apart unto God. It has nothing to do with the inherent value of whatever that person is, whatever that object is. Remember, there were vessels in the temple. They were holy. They were set apart to God. So you could use them in the worship of the temple. You just couldn't put chicken soup in them for lunch. They were set apart to God. What this is saying is that there's going to be a group of people who have decided they do not want to be set apart to God. They want to indulge in the things of the world. Rather than being set apart from sin, they are going to engage in sin rather than being set apart to God. They are going to be unholy. They are going to be heartless. It means to be without family affection. We would sometimes kick around the word narcissist. That would be maybe kind of a colloquial way that we describe, you know, in kind of our Oprah-level psychology, you know. <laughs> Um, but that's what it means to be heartless, is to not have family affection. To be unforgiving. This is a pretty tough word. This is a harsh word. It, it means to be unappeasable. There's no way to make them happy. This happened and I'm mad and I'm going to stay mad forever. 
And it doesn't make any difference if you apologize. It doesn't make any difference if you explain what you meant to say or what you meant to do. I'm just going to be mad forever. I am unappeasable. Do you know people like that that are telling stories from years ago and you're going, get over it. Like, really? I mean, that person's like dead now. (laughs) And you're still worrying about what they said? Come on, grow up, right? I mean, none of you have ever done this, but again, you know some people like this, right? You've probably met somebody. They, they are locked into an offense. And this was interesting. It means to be without a treaty or without a covenant. So I want you to stop and think about that. Where do treaties come from? I got one side over here, and they're trying to kill everybody over there. And I got one side over here, and they're trying to kill everybody over there. And somewhere along the line, one of them or somebody from the outside, because often it's a third party, comes in and says, why don't we come up with a treaty? Why don't we come up with some rules about how we're going to get along instead of just trying to kill each other all the time? And so you establish boundaries and borders and you come up with some ways of behavior and you write it down on a treaty and you say, this is how we're going to behave. What he's saying is that these are people who won't do that. They'll never sign a treaty. They're just going to keep trying to kill everybody on the other side. And they're never going to give up. If the highest expression of love or spirituality is love, Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13 as something that keeps no record of wrongs. These are people who have long, long lists of all the ways and all the times and from all the people they've been offended by. And their whole life is wrapped up in keeping that list active. Even continuing to talk about people who are no longer a part of their lives. But they're on the list. They are without treaty and they are without covenant. It's a good place to understand this. We describe marriage in terms of a covenant. One of the things that couples have to learn is that the marriage is more important than winning the argument. Wow, that was quiet, like we'd never heard that before. <laughs> the marriage is more important than winning the argument. And when these two, two people that are involved in this marriage decide that winning the argument is the most important thing, then they are going to break the covenant. Because now winning is more important than the covenant. And it's supposed to be the other way around. The covenant is more important than winning. And every once in a while, you got to look a guy in the eye and say, dude, you can win the argument and you're going to have to go home and cook your own dinner and wash your own clothes because you're going to go home by yourself. Or you can apologize and promise to do better and keep this relationship intact. So do you want to win the argument or do you want to keep the covenant? What do you want to do here, buddy? Paul said people are going to be people who have to win the argument, who keep a list of wrongs, who have no treaties and have no covenants. They are irreconcilable. They are slanderous. The the word in Greek here you might kind of understand, but the word in Spanish I think a lot of you already know. So if you take the Greek word and move it into Spanish, you, you follow what I'm saying? It's the word diablo. That's the word that's used here, diablo. What does diablo mean in Spanish? The devil. (laughs) 
Why? Because Revelation says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. He is the accuser. In Spanish, accuser is diablo, and diablo is devil. These are people who are acting like the devil. They can't wait to just chirp about other people. Well, did you know what they did? And then they went and did this over here. And then they did this other thing. And you know what? I think the reason that they did that is because they're this kind of people. And <laughs> he says they are Diablo. They are accusers. They're slanderers. They're without self-control. It literally means to be without strength. This is the person that just cannot seem to get out of their own way. And every time there's some temptation, they just give in to it. That's, just, that's their go-to, you know? I'm tempted, uh, yeah, I'm going with it. You know? <laughs> Let's see, I could tell the truth, I could lie, uh, yeah, I'm going to lie. Yeah, that's okay, let's do that. You know? Let's see, I could stay sober, I could, uh, no, I'm, gonna, I'm going that way, you know? <laughs> no strength, no, no moral strength. It's not talking about how much they can bench press. It's talking about the fact that they can't handle temptation, and they always give in. Then it says that they're brutal. It literally means to be savage. It's like a bear attack. It's like getting attacked by cougars on a trail. You know, <laughs> brutal. So it's used of wild animals, and it's talking about people that are like that. It says they are not lovers of good. This is a unique word. It's the only place in all of Scripture that it's used. It's a person who's simply not interested in what's right. They're self-consumed to the point they don't want to hear what's right. Don't tell me what's right. Don't tell me what's wrong. I just want to do what I want to do. They are treacherous, means they are a traitor. It's the word that the Gospels use for Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. These are people who betray their friends. They betray confidence. They betray trust. They betray the people around them. And they are rash. These are people that fall headlong. That's literally what it means. It means to fall face forward on the ground. These are people that are just running after whatever's out there. There's always some new thing. Let's go for that. Let's go for this. Here's some new way to have money. <laughs> Here's some new way to have health. <laughs> Here's some new way to live forever. <laughs> you know, and there's always something out there, right? I, mean, I just tell you, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever diet you're on, there'll be a new one tomorrow. You know? <laughs> whatever you're eating today, you shouldn't be eating. You'll have to eat something else the next day. You know? Probably if you just ate the diet books, that would probably help you lose weight. But there's just always something. These are just people that are into whatever fad there is going on. He said, people are just going to get crazy. They're going to be conceited. I think we know what that means, right? They are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. This is kind of a play on words. It doesn't show up in English as well as it does in, in, in the way Paul wrote it. But it's just a person who puts their affections at the center of themselves. This is the ultimate idolatry. I could love God or I could love, I'll love me. Yeah, that works. I love me. I'm pretty good. What does me want to do today? I think that's what me will do. What's me want? I think me will go and get it. I love me. Is it the right thing to do? Well, I asked me and me said it was okay. So the God that I serve, Said it was fine. I love me. <laughs> they love the lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. This is an interesting one, and this one's kind of slippery. It's the idea that you can be very, very religious looking and sounding, but when it gets right down to it, you don't obey any of the scriptures that you say you so love. 
You don't honor the Jesus that you say you so serve. You don't do any of that stuff. Oh, I just love Jesus. Can we just get together? I love to just sing those songs, but I have to continue to live in this immoral relationship because it's the only way I can be happy. Because if I try to live a righteous life, I'll just end up miserable and alone. Whoops. Form of godliness, but we deny its power. Let's get together. I just love Jesus. I just love to have Bible studies. Let's sing all of these songs. And by the way, I get to keep all of my money and spend it on myself. Because I can't honor God, because if I honored God with my finances, I'd end up broke. I have a form of godliness, but I deny its power. My God will supply all of your needs. No, 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 no. I'll supply all of my needs, but I really love Jesus. It's a little slippery, isn't it? It's a little slippery. Paul says that's what's going to happen. Some very, very religious people, but they're going to deny the power of the very God and gospel that they say they are serving because their lifestyle is deliberately disobedient to what God has called them to do. And he's saying, Timothy, you need to turn away from that. You need to turn away from that. So here's the assignment. Don't you love these assignments? I just keep making assignments, you know? But, but aren't you glad we don't grade them? There's nothing to turn in, you know? There's no, you don't have to turn in your paper, you know, at the end of the week, you know? You don't have to take selfies of yourself, you know? Hey, look at I, I, I did the assignment, <laughs> you know? None of that, but we just keep handing out these assignments because I think this, this letter challenges us. Here's the assignment. Go back through that list and go, do I do those things? And let's determine, here's the assignment, to, to turn away from the kinds of things that Timothy's being told he needs to turn away from. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the kind of person that the righteous people have to turn away from to try to keep their own perspective in place. I want you to feel closer to Jesus after we've talked, not farther away. I want you to be encouraged to be more like Jesus after we talked rather than less. So that's our assignment. Timothy, turn away from people who act like this. Okay, then I won't be a person who acts like that. That's my assignment this week. Fair enough? I'm not getting a lot of buy-in on that one. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> By the way, don't be preaching like that anymore. I need you to talk about the pretty things in the Bible. Don't be talking to me about these things I'm not supposed to do. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so Jesus, help us. We want to be more like you. We want to be conformed to your image. We don't want to have just a little bit of fake religion thrown into our life. We want it to be the real thing. We want to be righteous people, godly people, kind people, charitable people, merciful people, but people who, up the, who are of the truth. They don't just watch our world fall apart and not say anything. Help us, God, to be real Christians, not just Christian-flavored sinners. Help us get it right, God. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be a light in a dark place.